Courthouse Media in Chicago, Illinois. This is The Ed Couple, an open, independent conversation about the world of education as seen through the eyes of leaders and reformers in the field. Your hosts are James Gray and Nate Petrini. Welcome to The Ed Couple. I'm Nate Petrini. And I'm James Gray. Nate, our guest today is someone who's seen just about every side of education in Chicago, mm. including the unfortunate role to observe and support a young teacher in Inglewood. Oh, man. Do you know who that was? Yeah, that was me. <laughs> more, more on that later. More on that later. Our guest today is Kyle Westbrook. Kyle is the founding executive director of the Partnership for College Completion, PCC. PCC's mission is to catalyze and champion policies, systems, and practices that ensure all students in the Chicago area, particularly low-income and first-generation students, graduate from college and achieve their career aspirations. Before launching PCC, he served as the Executive Director of Education Policy in the Office of Mayor Rahm Emanuel's office, uh, focusing primarily on the City Colleges of Chicago and higher education. Hence his later job. Kyle has extensive experience in public education, having spent almost 25 years in public education as a teacher, teacher leader, leadership consultant, and a district-level administrator, including five years leading the Office of Magnet, Gifted, and International Baccalaureate Programs in the Chicago Public Schools. He is uh, a doctoral candidate in the Education Policy Studies at the University of Illinois Chicago, where his dissertation work is on the racial politics of the CTU from 1963 to 1983. Highly specific. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's a small one. Yeah. Kyle, welcome to the Ed Couple. Thank you for having me. Uh, Kyle, we ask all of our guests the most important question first. Uh, Who's your favorite teacher and why? Yeah, I've been thinking about this one. Um, And I'm actually going to pull a Josh Kaufman and and give (laughs) you two. Do do it. Most guests do. You know, because it's hard to just narrow down to just one person. And I think think about, um, for two very different reasons, Um, I think about this this middle school teacher I had, uh, Mr. Roundtree in Springfield, Illinois. Um, And Mr. Roundtree showed me some mercy so <laughs> in, in, in a way that is a little bit uh, um, unexpected so this was like the 19 i don't know 87 86 somewhere in the mid 80s 86 87 um and i was in seventh grade and me, uh, me and a buddy of mine got the grand idea that we would um, bootleg um video games <laughs> and so we started on floppy it was like big five and a quarter oh, sure. inch floppy yeah. disk we're the same um, age kyle so i understand so exactly you understand what you're exactly. saying you yeah. just put one disc <laughs> yeah. in here copy it to this Basically. Confused, but it's okay. I had a floppy disk computer. I played uh, Oregon Trail all that good stuff. But I did not know how to copy them and sell them in my middle school. I, I figured like this was this was going to be my career. Was, yeah. like technology, maybe not bootlegging. But, you know. So so buddy of mine. So we we started bootlegging um, these video games, and so we you know wrote up, we typed up like a price list with all the games on. It's like Donkey Kong is five bucks, and Karateka is like ten dollars, whatever. So it, pretty soon it's like circulating all over seventh grade. And of course, it's not going to take long before it gets to a teacher or administrator or something like yeah. that. And in our heads, we were, this was like the FBI was going to come get us <laughs> if we ever got found out. But Mr. Roundtree, um, who was one of probably only, I think, three African-American male teachers I had in my entire, you know, career in education. Um, Mr. Roundtree found out um, as, you know, it's the worst kept secret in the seventh grade. Um, and he pulled uh, my buddy and I to pulled us aside and gave us a stern talking to, um, but didn't, but it didn't go anywhere after that, anywhere farther than that. And I, and I think about that because I think there's just so many times where, Situations like, and, and then we quit. You know, we like he talked to us and like you can't do this and da da da. And we got it. Didn't do it anymore, and that was the end of it. And that was the end of like my, my first money making, <laughs> like my first entrepreneurial <laughs> enterprise. But like he showed, he showed me, you know, mercy and what and like I thought about this a lot when I was a teacher myself. Is like you don't have to always involve, you know, authorities or other people. There's a lot of things that we can handle with kids just one-on-one that can, we'll send them the message that we want them to receive, but doesn't escalate it to involve, you know, other folk. Um, And I think the other person (laughs) um, who has a name that, thank God this is a podcast, Mr. Seaman in high school, (laughs) Um, high school history teacher. Um, and I, one of the things that he, I think, taught me is he was like probably one of the first people to actually sort of 
compliment me on something, you know, like, and I think we as teachers don't um, take enough care with our words when we like praise a student. Um, and he wasn't, one of these, he wasn't, he wasn't a teacher who gave out compliments like lightly, yeah. you know? So when Mr. Seaman complimented my writing and said, mm-hmm. God, you're really, you know, like, you're really good at this. Like, you, you know, think about doing this and changing this. It, you know, it gave me a confidence that I don't think that I had felt, um, mm-hmm. really about any of, you know, I felt like I was a good student, but you know, that, you know, and there's something that he sort of really actively began to coach me around that, you know, paid off obviously in college and then later in life to yeah. be, but giving me that sense of confidence of, you know, you are a good writer and yeah. you can do this. What year was that in high school? Uh, that was, so I had him for junior and senior year. So that okay. was 90 and 91 is when I graduated from high school. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> so from Springfield, you went to Southern Illinois. Yeah. Talk about uh, your experience yeah. So Car- Carbondale, you know, I love Carbondale. It, it, you know, I think it's a, it's one of these places. And I think a lot of our state public schools are like this where you can get out of it what you put into it. And, you know, it, like, I feel like I got a world-class education from SIU Carbondale at really at bargain basement prices. $187 a, a year, right? Yeah, it was yeah really, I read that. Yeah, <laughs> that was my gap. Right? Yeah, yeah, I read that. As much, you know, would be due every year would be. Good old days. Bill. Yeah. You could actually pay your tuition. In Illinois, um, based on your financial aid, really until 2002 in Illinois, um, the MAP award or the state's need-based um, aid system was was pegged to the tuition and fees at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. So as U of I's tuition went up, so did the MAP award. And the idea is that for a, a low-income student, a max-needs student like me, like I should be able to go to college for virtually free. Sure. So my MAP award would pay for my tuition and fees in Carbondale, and then my um, and then my Pell Grant would pay for my housing. And there'd be, you know, <laughs> a small gap. Um, uh, but unfortunately for so many students now, like, that's just not the reality. Like, your MAP award now, which co- used to cover 100% of tuition, now covers only 30, about 30 to 40% um, at our state universities. So, you know, if I were a student today in, in going to college in a, a state public university, I don't know how I would, I wouldn't afford it. Like I wouldn't be able to go because, yeah. you know, for a student like myself with a mom who was a telephone operator, there was no like even thousand dollar, you know, yeah. college fund. It was like, Hey, here's, we got nothing. Yeah. Nothing like here's your own bucks and make it last. See you at Thanksgiving. Oh, see you yeah. at Thanksgiving, you yeah. know, but, um, this isn't going to get you back. So you got to figure that out. Right? Yeah. <laughs> hey. So you said, um, it, SIU is one of those universities where you get out of it, what you put into it. So mm-hmm. what did you put into it? What'd you do when you were in college? Um, I, you know, I think, and people that are close to me know this, uh, but I was, I was not a great student in high school. And I, I partied too much. Yeah. Um, and I did. And then, so I was probably the student who went to Carbondale and like calmed down. <laughs> like, I, I was the one person who went to Carbondale and said, like, I'm okay. Like, yeah. I don't really want to go out this weekend. Um, and I actually would spend way more time on the weekends in the library because to me, like the library is like, it's 11 floors and there's like, whatever, 2 million books in there. And I was just like, whoa, and I can take as many of these <laughs> as I want. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, so my path in college was probably a lot different from a lot of other students. Cause I just, like, I had been there, done a lot of that stuff in high school. Um, and so, you know, so I got to college and, you know, had some wonderful instructors that really, you know, also inspired me, you know, mm-hmm. were also people who were examples to me of, you know, African-American scholars who, you know, took, you know, a lot of us under their wings and said, like, you belong here, you know, and, that, and that, I don't think we give enough, like, we don't give enough credit to the idea of students feeling like they belong somewhere. And, and you know, and those, those professors, Dr. Julius Thompson, who was one of my mentors in college, um, he's one of those people that made all of us feel like this is your space too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, did you major in history education? Oh, yeah. 
and then went straight into teaching. Um, I did. I, I took a really, um, you know, traditional path into yeah. into teaching. I, you know, went straight through in four years um, and got my first teaching job uh, at Lincoln Park High School. Yeah, we want to talk about that. Yeah, you know, and it started in 1995, and I, I feel like I'm like the someone that's like the the, the Forrest Gump of Chicago <laughs> education because I've been in all these moments, you know, like yeah. on the periphery of all these moments in, in Chicago education in the last 24, 20, almost 25 years. And on the day that I got staffed in 95 in the old Pershing Road building where, you know, it's this this big um, row of warehouses now. It's from like Damon almost to Western on Pershing. And those buildings were CPS, like that was the central, central office. office. And yeah. so you you went in and it, there was no air conditioning in those buildings. So I got staffed in August of 1995. And on that, that was that happened to be the day that Paul Vallis was actually getting staffed as the oh, new wow. CEO of Chicago Schools, which I didn't know, you know, sure. anything what that yeah. meant. Like, yeah. I don't know, like, yeah. But it obviously became much more important later. Um, but yeah, started in Lincoln Park in 95. Um, I was, you know, it was a very veteran faculty um, at Lincoln Park um, because the principal there at the time, and she told me this in the interview, um, she said, I don't hire new teachers. Um, and, and the reason she hired me is because I had such a niche, like my major was history, my minor was African-American studies. And the position that she was hiring for was African-American oh, history. Wow. Yeah. So it was just perfect. All yeah. the stars lined up. Um, but And I was the only new teacher she hired in the five years that I was there. Um, so I walked into a space where there was just a lot of great veteran teachers in, in, in Lincoln Park that are still some, some really good friends of mine. Contrast that with nowadays student-based budgeting when principals are sort of forced sometimes to hire newer teachers That's or look right. for newer teachers yeah. with less experience. And it's yeah. a real tricky thing. It's a whole tricky Yeah. yeah. And it, I mean, like, I feel like I learned so much. You know, I mean, I think any, any first year teacher, any beginning teacher, I think you learn way more about yourself than you do about kids um, or about schools. But you learn about yourself, what you can do, what you can't do, what you can handle, what you can't handle. But having veteran teachers there were, it was just, it was comforting because. Because you could have you had people who had been there, done that, seen that, and in many cases had it worse. That could just tell you like, ah, it's all right, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, like don't sweat it, um, and it's it's gonna be okay. Um, and I just I I wonder what that looks like now in schools where, you know, even when I went to Peyton. I was 27 and I was easily in the upper quartile of, and I had wow. probably four or five years, five years experience. Even there, I was easily in the upper quartile of ex experience, mm -hmm. even at 27 years old. Um, and I just, I wonder what it looks like now uh, in schools where everybody's 27, yeah. you know? Yeah. So you taught for 12 years, which is, I think, longer than Nate and I combined. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good I run. Taught, so, I taught for eight years. years. You did? Yeah. Okay. All right. I taught more than four, so never mind. But um, what, why did you think about getting out of teaching? Because, mm -hmm. you know, 12 years in, most people are going to stick it out for the 34 yeah. and, and make, a, make a run for it. Yeah, I know. Sometimes I kick myself. Like, well, <laughs> yeah. what did I do? Right? You'd be retired pretty soon. I mean, yeah, I'm, like, I'm just holding on now. <laughs> Um, I, you know, I think a lot of it had to do with, um, oh, there was two things. One was the ways in which Peyton had changed, you know, from the time that I started. So, um, when I started at Peyton, and I think a lot of people, it's, it's hard for people to, to realize this now, but when Peyton first opened, it was a very black and brown school. Um, I mean, there were a lot of black working class and poor black and brown kids from the South, from the West side, from what was remaining of, you know, the Cabrini, Cabrini. And the, yeah. in the fields, homes. Um, and so, in the principal there, Gail, who is someone I'm still really close to, she was very intentional about wanting to have this very diverse, racially diverse, um, that was you know, like it was very explicit. And then she would say it in LSE meetings, this, we want 35% African-American. We want 35% Latino. Um, and obviously the, when the Supreme court, um, you know, ruled, I think it was in 2006 or seven that in the Seattle case where you could, you couldn't take race. race yeah. yeah. Uh, that obviously changed Peyton. Uh, it changed all our schools. But by 2008, when I left Peyton, 
I think what happened was um, a good friend of mine, Doug O'Rourke, is the person who recruited me to come teach at Payton mm-hmm. um, when it was first opening. And Doug and I had taught at Lincoln Park together. It's you know, just great, great mind. Um, and he, what he said to me was, "We're going to prove that if you give, you know, poor black and brown kids the best." Build, you know, the best facilities, yeah. the best of everything that they can achieve at the same level as any other student in the state of Illinois. And I think we did that in those first few years. And then the school just became much more attractive to middle and upper income parents who two years previously would not have given the school a time yeah. day because it was new, it was unproven. Yes. So by 2008, the school didn't look like it did when I when I started yeah. there and like these weren't these weren't necessarily like my kids the ones that like were me or like working class kids who or poor kids who were just like you know had some had a little bit of support but just need you know um, and so it was, it was easy actually um, to, to leave Peyton in 2008 um, and I, I'm still very good friends with a lot of folks that are still there yeah. and um, and they're still doing phenomenal, excuse me phenomenal work there's still a handful of folks that were there from you know the, the founding of the school but um, it just looked really different, you know, just the whole character of the school. And so and then the other part was the opportunity to go work at the University of Chicago and just do something entirely different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so you you mentioned this earlier um, that uh, uh, or we mentioned this, mm-hmm. sorry, that uh, you're writing about Chicago Teachers Union for your dissertation. Talk a little bit mm-hmm. about that and, mm-hmm. and what influence your time teaching played <laughs> in choosing that uh, as a topic of study. It, it was the most important, like my time at Lincoln Park um, is really what informed that. Um, I don't know what the hell teachers were thinking in 1997 to elect me as one of their union delegates. <laughs> <laughs> no one else ran, Kyle. <laughs> and you're really tall, so you just kind of stand out in rooms. Like, I think that's it. You know? yeah. Yeah. And I feel like my name must have been higher on the ballot than because <laughs> it was. It was like so. There's you know in the school for folks that don't know, um, union delegates in Chicago Post schools are apportioned according to how many faculty, how many staff are there. In Lincoln Park at that time, we had one. Um, sort of one delegate and then two associate delegates based on the number of, of teachers that we had. Um, and so there were three, there were four of us running for three seats. Um, I, and I don't know why the hell they chose. I, you know, and I don't even really quite. <laughs> well, why'd frankly, you run? Why didn't, you didn't have to run. I didn't have now. to run, <laughs> but I came from a union household. You know, my mother was, uh, she, she was a telephone operator. She was a, um, a member of the, International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers is IBEW was the um, union for um, telephone operators. And there are times where like the union saved my mom's job, you know, when she laid on when she was laid off um, illegally and um, and then kept they, they laid her off illegally. And then when they wanted to bring her back at like a lower pay rate, you know, pay run, the union went to bat for her. You know, so the union went to bat for, you know, a, a African-American single mother of, you know, five kids. And that that stuff stuck with me. And, uh, you know, like there's just there's there was a lot of issues around class size at Lincoln Park. Um, and, you know, in hindsight, it was the dumbest thing I ever did because I wasn't even tenured yet. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, like I wasn't you even probably t- weren't even assigned yet. I was, you had to be I was, assigned. I was an FTB still. Yeah. Um, you, this is back before you, Nate. Because this way. You had to be you got the job. Mm-hmm. You could work three, four years, and then you got assigned yes. at the principal's discretion, mm-hmm. and then you had to work four years to get tenure. I yeah. mean, it was very different from today. But I, yeah, that was, was dumb. It was the dumbest <laughs> thing I ever did. So I'm sitting here as, virtually as an unprotected teacher, you know, um, talking about grievances uh, with the principal. And um, but I actually had a lot of cover from you know Bernie Eshoo, who was the main delegate there, who's still someone who's I think involved in the union. Um, but I ran for you know the union delegate seat, and I, I won one of those associate delegate seats. And then my first time I went to a union house of delegates meeting, it was, it, it was crazy to me because the, the, the audience, the delegates were so segregated. Um, when you walk in, it was like, it was almost like the high school lunchroom, <laughs> like black teachers over here, wow. white teachers are over here. And I don't know. And, and it also shook out along kind of high school versus elementary lines. Um, and so I'm like, I don't know. Like, ooh, this is crazy, like in an uncomfortable way. Um, and so that's actually what sort of, you know, sort of piqued my interest in like, how does a union, which it should be, you know, obviously, um, 
where, where you shouldn't have these divisions along racial or even along, um, you know, elementary versus high school lines. Like, how did we, how did, what created this? And mm. so that's what just started just a lot of kind of questioning on my part of, of what the history is surrounding it and, you know, what the, what the individual teachers, what the leadership and all of that. And that's what I've spent. How long did you serve as the associate delegate? Um, just the, a year, two years. Okay. Um, you yeah. unseated or did you move on to? I moved on. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so I've never lost an election. <laughs> um, so at UEI, you worked with a lot of schools, including Team Inglewood, where mm-hmm. Nate worked. Mm-hmm. Um, just broadly talk about your role there. And you were there for three years. Yeah, I was there for three years. Um, I was a, I was a glorified, I was a consultant with a university card. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. really what it was. It's like, I show up and, you know, meet with Nate, meet with, um, you know, some of the other teachers at team, you, the, the principal there. Um, and I think our role was nominally to, um, ex- talk about what other new schools are kind of doing and bring folks together in these kind of communities of practice to, you know, because you only get one shot as a new school. Like, it, it, and then 10 years later, cultures have been built, um, That's right. systems have been built, yeah. and you get, you know, you really have a pretty narrow window to experiment, a pretty narrow window to try different things. And so part of our role at the university was to bring the, you know, a lot of new schools, uh, team was one of them, but they're also a mixture of charter schools, uh, as well as some other district run schools that were a part of this mix. And sort of say, hey, let's get folks together to study, you know, to do classroom visits. And um, we, so our role was to sort of facilitate all of that and then on occasion bring in experts to, um, you know, sort of talk with school leaders and teacher leaders to understand, like, what, you know, what could this, Teresa Perry was one of my favorites, um, mm-hmm. you know, and when, and when she came and talked about sort of discipline and how we are over-policing black kids in schools, which I think it was just a message that our, our schools really needed to hear. Yeah, and that was ahead of its time. I mean, it shouldn't be. That was ahead of its time, though, uh-huh. from what? Yeah. yeah that was you know, from the Obama presidency, yeah. uh, who brought that to light. Yeah, I think maybe national. 2008 or nine or something around there. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was very much ahead of, ahead of its time to really be having that conversation and thinking about what are... The, the explicit and implicit messages that we send to kids when we, you know, make them wear uniforms even. Um, right. and, and what are the messages we send them about how we over police, even if we accept the fact that some that's we want students to wear uniforms when we over police the actual wearing right. of the uniforms. Right. Like, oh, your, your belt's on, you know, not tucked in or like, come your on. Your undershirt's pink. Yeah, no, yeah, it's only like, supposed to be white. On. Like, what are, we, what are we doing? Like, we're spending a lot and then teachers obviously like you end up you know we would see teachers that end up in these impossible situations because you spend so much time fighting with kids about like their shoelaces yeah <laughs> you know and so much time fighting with them about their sh- whether their shirt is tucked or untucked yeah. and then at the end of the period you get to some actual history yeah. and you get to <laughs> some actual english <laughs> did you feel like your experiences teaching for 12 years you know prepared you for that? Because that's a difficult job to go into schools, Mm -hmm. to get buy-in from an administrator, from teachers like Nate. (laughs) Maybe not not Nate, but other people. Not Uh, Nate, not Nate, actually. Because I I don't think it was, it wasn't hard because I think um, in many of the schools that were, they were, the the staffs were in many cases very young and and folks are open. Like, you know, folks, there's this sort of like openness to like, hey, like, I don't know everything and I'm, I'm, I'm willing to listen. Like, if you put me in in one of those positions, I'm like, I don't, I'm like, I don't even like, I don't even listen to my kids. Like, you know, like, I just, you know, but you know, obviously, with with younger teachers, there's just this kind of openness yeah. and this willingness to like try different things too. Yeah, I mean, I I remember during those years, Kyle, you were probably in my classroom, like you know, five to ten times in ILT meetings, five to ten times, and and as a younger, newer teacher. I felt this responsibility of like, holy crap, we're trying to build a school. What if I do this wrong? Mm -hmm. Sort of like you were saying, like, what if I select the wrong courses to Mm -hmm. offer for the junior year or I build a poor curriculum? Mm -hmm. I I need someone to help steer this down the right direction. That was a lot of what you were doing was helping us look at our unit plans, think about what we were teaching and plan for the next year. Mm -hmm. You were with us 
um, periodically from just our freshman class. Yeah. I know. Yeah. And that was, I think, really, um, but I think that that was also just a product of, you know, you as a teacher, as a teacher leader, you know, like there's a certain openness that, you know, you have to like just assume that like, I don't know everything, you know, like, and that's, it's always regardless of where you are in life. I, I mean, I kid that I don't listen. I mean, some ways I don't, um, <laughs> but, but, but I also realized that we, if you're not listening, you're not learning. Right. And, and, and God, I hate, I'd hate to think the moment where I feel like I've learned everything. Like that would be depressing to yeah. me, you know, like it, I may as well go to Florida yeah. you know? <laughs> and drink lemonade or whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> and just wait at that point, you know, like when is death coming? Because there's nothing left. For our listeners, we are taping during the day. None of us are drinking whiskey. Yeah. We normally drink whiskey during podcasts, but no, no, no. this is a uh, sober podcast. So you were there for three years. You decided to come back to CPS. Yeah. Um, you became... Uh, the manager, mm-hmm. sorry, ED of Magnet Gifted and IB programs. Mm-hmm. So CPS has the largest network of international baccalaureate schools in the nation. Mm-hmm. Mayor Emanuel pushed for a huge expansion of programs in about 2012 mm-hmm. while you were the ED. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so you spent a lot of time on international baccalaureate. Yes. First of all, can you just succinctly explain IB programs to our listeners and yeah. then tell us why CPS chose to invest so heavily? Yeah. So the IB programs, um, it began as this um, curriculum for the, the children of diplomats around the world to have this kind of standardized, very rigorous curriculum that would be portable. If you were a diplomat who was in the UK and then you were going to uh, Egypt the next year, like the idea is that you would be able to tra- go between these schools and it would be very rigorous. Um, and in the 60s, the, the United States, um, the, I'm sorry, it was in the early 80s that the United States, American schools. And actually, Lincoln Park was one of the first in the country to actually um, implement an international baccalaureate program. Fast forward, and they started that program, I think, in 81. Um, And then fast forward to 97, Paul Vallis had this great idea that, like, went to Lincoln Park and saw what was happening at Lincoln Park. And and I'll put an asterisk next to Lincoln Park because it's, it's, it's an outlier, compared to our other IB programs right. because it's very selective and the, the the entrance scores to get in were just really, really high. But anyway, so he saw really the, the great stuff that was happening in Lincoln Park and then said, we need more of these. And so he led really the first mass expansion of IB from just being Lincoln Park at that time to uh, Steinmet, and I'm going to forget some, so apologize if you are one of the original schools <laughs> that, that I'm yeah. going to forget, but it was Steinmetz, Hyde Park, um, <clears throat> Sen High School, Morgan Park High School, um, Kelly High School, um, Hubbard, um, handful of uh, Curie, handful of other, and then a few elementary schools. And, and so in two, and then the, and then around 2000, and the consortium on Chicago School Research, you know, they, they wanted to ask. They the big question they asked was, "Has this worked? Sure. Yeah. Has it done?" Good anything? question. You know, like yeah. Yeah. You know, you've got enough. Thirty years later, millions of dollars <laughs> later, um, has it worked? And the the research that they that they published in 2011, I think, um, said it's actually had a pretty profound impact. And so they actually took they excluded Lincoln Park from the study because it's compared to the other IB programs in the, in the city, they're far more selective and their students look far more like selective enrollment students mm-hmm. than traditional neighborhood students. So you excluded Lincoln Park from the study. And then what they found is the students who are graduating from the IB programs in Chicago were going to getting into and going to more selective um, colleges than their matched peers, even in selective enrollment schools, and that they were persisting longer. In college, and so that's that was probably my second month on the job <laughs> yeah. when that report came out, and I knew and it so, was going to be hell. So, the mayor, so then the mayor walks down the street, kicks the door open, and, and says, says, "80 more schools." He, originally, he said they wanted to do like the, the district wanted to do every high school, um, every high school to be an IB, and I was like, "Okay, well, that's going to be X millions of dollars." Like, so I think we're going to have to walk this back a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, so eventually, we arrived at a number, um, and I would wish I could say there was some. Science 
science behind it, but at the time there were like five networks, so we're going to have two in each network. Right. Um, yeah. right. And so then we led this, um, you know, expansion of IB um, in 2011, 12, 13, and still expanding now with some elementary schools that were announced even last year. Um, I, was, I was really proud of that work, but it wasn't without controversy. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was. I think one of the, you know, I, you, you always have, everybody has these bad days on work and on your job. And so I think when I think about even my worst days on my job now, it could not compare to <laughs> like my worst day in that job, which was when I had to go to Lincoln Park High School with former colleagues of mine, like people that I, you know, really respected and, and were friends with. And tell all of them that they were being laid off and they were, they, you know, they were going to reapply for the job. But some of them wouldn't, you know, so, and I'm like, oh, God, these are, these are like, you know, people that I've known for, for, you know, a decade, almost 20 years at that point. Yeah. And that was, you know, so when I think about like whatever happens in my job now, like it will never compare to how awful that, that experience was. So you were the hatchet man. Why, why is that your job? <laughs> no, honestly. Cause I, yeah, I mean like nobody wants to do it. Like in, in, I was the only, so my office, since we were leading the IB expansion, you know, the HR folks in CPS, like they will read a script, right? I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's yeah, some bad script bona fide and certified by the law department as like you won't get sued if you say these things but you can't just you know you can't just walk into an auditorium full of teachers and say, and have someone read a script and then say meeting over yeah, right. <laughs> you know um and so then i you know got to be the person to sort of try as best I could to explain why this was necessary um so yeah it was Tough. So yeah, it was tough. Yeah. 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 I, for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with that, when a school in CPS would get sort of reconstituted in regards to its focus, teachers would have to reapply for their jobs. And, yep. and so you probably had to deal with that in more than just Lincoln Park High School, dozens of schools. Yep. So you, you mm-hmm. had a big plate um, during your time there in mm-hmm. CPS from the beginning of Mayor Emanuel yep. running the city schools mm-hmm. through his first term. And I assume that... Uh, you did many other things that you were proud of, but mm-hmm. taking this on probably particularly piqued the interest of the mayor, who then pulled yeah. you over to yeah. City Hall. I mean, that was a known quantity in the mayor's yeah. office. You know, I, I think because I had, you know, led this work, um, and, it, and it was, you know, there were two kind of phases of that IB expansion. One was around that report. The second was when the district closed 50 schools. And part of what, you know, part of what the district also did is said, okay, especially in communities where there were, were going to be a lot of closures with the district says, well, we're, we're going to actually invest in some new programs in those schools. Mm-hmm. And so, um, in the, in those communities. So we, we then put elementary IB programs in um, <clears throat> West Garfield Park, uh, Woodlawn, um, a couple of in Bronzeville, um, Humboldt Park. Um, and so then that was the sort of next expansion of IB was in, the, in, in elementary schools. And I think the thing that the thing that we did differently is we didn't lay there were no right. layoffs that that time. It was very much like, um, you know, we can do this with the staff together here yeah. and do this. Yeah, it was it was such a lump like contentious and um, toxic process um, the first time around that I think. No one wanted to do that again. And, you know, these were folks that were already being displaced from their schools that were being closed. And um, and so, yeah, it was a very different proposition when we did it the second time around. Yeah. So you went to the mayor's office and your title was executive director of education policy for Mayor Manuel uh, in fall of 2015. Around the same time that a lot of work was happening with the community college, which mm-hmm. community colleges, which you specifically were going to try yeah. and help direct. Uh, one of the big initiatives that came out at that time was the star scholarship for mm-hmm. CPS students, mm-hmm. which gives free tuition for CPS kids going to community colleges with a 3.0 GPA yeah. or higher. And, and just recently, the Financial Times just this week yeah. uh, did a study of that policy mm-hmm. and talked about how, you know, obviously something I'm sure you're very proud of that. Over that at just over 80% since its launch in the autumn of 2015, the completion rate among Chicago Star Scholars from community colleges is roughly three times the national 
average. Um, so talk to us about Star Scholarship and anything else from mm-hmm. that time in the mayor's office here particularly. Yeah, and I think the thing, I think the mayor, and I won't obviously take any credit for this because this, you know, was really the mayor, um, uh, Chancellor Hyman, and um, and Barbara at the end of her tenure um, that were really kind of, uh, you know, sort of the, the but my part of my job was in like make it happen. Yeah, yeah. 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 Like, yeah. That's all the hard of the hard part. parts. Yeah. 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 All, all the stuff and, and having hard conversations that people don't have. Um, but I think the the thing that I you know I think all of us could be really proud of also is the the Star Scholarship is the only one in the country, to my knowledge, that also includes undocumented students. And so yeah. when you, you know you consider what the like prospects are for a student who has no access to financial aid at all um, and what this scholarship could actually mean not only to them but to their family right because it's not just the, the this individual student who will go to college and earn an associate's or bachelor's but the the cascading effect that that has on their younger siblings their you know close-in relatives is just something that it's hard to quantify but we know that it matters. And so I think the thing that you, know, one of the things I think that, you know, I'm certainly most proud of, of working on in, that, in this work is just making sure that, um, you know, from both the CPS and the city colleges, because like part of my job was also to be the middleman yeah. <laughs> um, between CPS and city colleges uh, at a time that, um, Folks just in some, in some ways they didn't quite get along, um, and yeah. it's unfortunate. But you know, it's it's nice now that um, Chancellor Sagato and, and uh, uh, Dr. Jackson actually they they've moved close. You know, like they are yeah. working hand in hand now because it is for our communities and for our students. This one system, like our kids, don't think of like. You know, I mean, they think of college obviously separately from high school. But if you live in the city of Chicago, like we have to actually help our students see that we have one, we have one system that starts in pre-K yeah. and can you know end in community college or could go on to some of our four-year institutions in town. I think that I think that work is something I was really also proud to be working on, which was the Star Spark Partnership, which is. Um, I think it was my second day on the job <laughs> when we brought a bunch of university presidents together in a room and the mayor, you know, essentially said, you know, we need we need you to step up to support the star scholars when they graduate. And so uh, I think that first round of colleges was around 15 colleges, universities in the city of Chicago who all pledged scholarship money for, you know, star scholars. So if a star scholar graduates, um, gets into their institution, then you had all the way from like Northwestern who said, we're going to give you a full ride. Um, and then, um, you know, DePaul, Loyola were $10,000 each or something like that. And then, um, you know, all, all across the city. And so That's I great. was really, really excited and happy to be working on that. Yeah. So um, he's, Mayor Manuel is going to be out of office in a couple months and now's the time, Kyle. Give us a good story. About <laughs> Almost in a spit take there. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, boy. A good story about that. Uh, God, I don't know if I can. He's not a listener, so don't worry. <laughs> right, or how so, about this? What was it like working for him? Because, yeah. you know, we all think we know his personality yeah. from. Uh, I, and I think the thing that people don't, um, I think there's a caricature of the mayor that he just walks in a room and he bullies and he just smashes, you know, pushes stuff off the table and slams his fist. Um, and it's his way or the highway. And I actually, that was not the person I experienced, actually. What I found was, <clears throat> I found the mayor, like, he definitely has, uh, you know, a lot of ideas and he, and, um, he definitely has a direction that he wants to go on a lot of issues. But what I found is if you make a, a reasonable argument counter to what he, you know, wants, he, he'll honor it and he'll, you know, but what you can't say to the mayor is you can't say, mayor, we can't do that. Right. Um, what you can say is we can't do that, but we can do this. Um, and, and, and that's part of what my job was, was to say, like, in some cases, we can do this, but that might be a little problematic. Yeah. Um, and, and I think the other thing people who don't, who haven't worked close to him don't realize is how prepared he oh, yeah. is. I mean, he reads yeah. everything. I, it's, it's, 
his stamina and you know because we as in staff you'd see his schedule every day and you see what time it starts and you see what time it ends and the stamina that he has every day six days and seven days a week um and and how detailed and data driven that you know the question that would come back on some of the um, things that we would send to him would just be question mark where's the data like what, you know, what, what's the data telling me about this? And, and so, cause I think there's this caricature also that he just sort of like wings it and man, you know, sort of makes up policy from the seat of his pants and nothing could be farther from the truth. Yeah. So no funny stories. Are <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I, hey, like ask me back after he's out. Right, right. we'll, we'll have you come back in May. Yeah. So um, you left there and you're now the executive director of the Partnership for College Completion. So now we're going to get into some of the meats and potatoes here, mm-hmm. Kyle. Um, but first, this is a new nonprofit that, and you're the founding executive director. How did it start? Was this your idea? Was this someone else's idea? It was not my idea. Um, it's really the, the foundation community in Chicago. Um, a lot of them, uh, some family foundations um, and, and a couple of the, some of the larger foundations who a few years ago, I think it was around 2015, they realized that they had done a lot of investment in college access yeah. programs right. and they had done a lot of access and kind of like um, mentoring kind of programs and even a lot of investment in terms of um the, you know, supports for uh, wraparounds for kids in, in high school, but they had done not, they hadn't done as much investment in higher education. And so like the way, the, the way I always think about it is it was as if our funder community and I would say our general public, we assume that if we are not like we can get them all prepared in high school and then we can kind of inoculate them and then send them off to college. And the assumption is that once they're in college, they're fine. Right. And not, and the data just does not bear that out. When you look at college completion rates for low income students, which in Illinois, high income or non Pell eligible students graduate at about 75 percent within the federal you know designated time. Um, low income students graduate at th- like 37 percent graduate within that same time period. Um, and those numbers look even more stark when you begin to disaggregate by race. Um, and, and so, you know, the data just doesn't, you know, the data tells a very different story from what I think the public often assumes, which is you go to college, you finish. Um, and so that group of foundations, then they, they essentially, um, you know, did a national search for executive director. And I was fortunate to be chosen to lead the organization. And then they essentially sort of gave, gave me the board of found, the board of directors gave me a sort of a blank slate and said, Figure out what we should do about this. <laughs> and and you fun. Yeah. All right. So then that leads me to my next question. So then you basically came back with a policy agenda that obviously has a lot of things that you're working on, but three really broad problems that you think yep. PCC needs to address. So number one is the racial disparities that exist in Illinois when it comes to college enrollment and completion. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two, the rising cost of college for low-income families. And number three, yep. just the fact that our college completion rates aren't increasing almost at all throughout right. the state, yeah, right? That's right. Um, so talk a little bit about how you came mm-hmm. uh, to that mission and, and what are some key things people need to know about it. Yeah, I, and I, I think um, I will I will speak in the collective we here because this was very much a team effort between um, myself and uh, Lisa Castillo-Richmond, who um, was is our managing director and is really one of the, the first hires that, that I was able to make. Um, so Lisa and I, um, we spent the better part of seven months. Um, and again, like it's it's mind blowing to me that the board <laughs> gave us that much time. Um, you know, the, the board didn't come in and say, "All right, we'll figure this out next month." Like, yeah. and gave us a lot of time and a, lot, a long runway um, to just interview any and everybody who would talk to us. Um, so we talked to everybody from you know folks in Governor Rauner's office to folks in community-based organizations, higher education institutions, K-12, not just CPS, because we think about this regionally, inclusive of uh, our, our suburban districts as well, um, business leaders, philanthropy, um, some folks doing this kind of work nationally. Um, and so after, and then looked at the data, yeah. you know, and it was, it was pretty Pretty sobering um, when you look at the data and, and know that not only are we not 
um, closing equity gaps, those those gaps that exist. But in some cases, they're widening. Um, and, and if on the current trajectory, um, there's every reason to believe that we will be worse off if we don't change, you know, mm. both some policy things as well as some things that institutions can say. There's every reason to believe that we'll be worse off on on graduation rates, particularly for low income students and, and African American students, um, in ten or fifteen years if if we do nothing. And, and so, yeah, we listened, we looked at data, and then um, talked to a lot of folks around the country and and and, and this region also who are really committed to. Um, student success. And I think there's I think one of the things I've noticed sort of in thinking about my role in K-12 versus now higher education is K-12 knows that it exists just for students like that. That's what you're here for is to serve yeah. students. There's no um, but you, you will hear from folks, uh, you know, especially at some research, you know, institutions that, well, you know, students are part of, you know, student success is part of what we have to manage, but we're also a research institution right. and it's just different here. <laughs> um, I, you know, and I, I mean, I'm obviously I'm a PhD candidate, so I'm sympathetic to research and how important it is. But when you see these gaps that exist between where black students are graduating and where white students are graduating, it's indefensible. Um, and, and if we to say that, like, it's not your responsibility. Yeah, to say problem. That's right. That's right. And yeah. if we, you know, if, if we had graduation rates that were, if these were high schools that were graduating um, students at the rates that we were, that we see, we'd be talking about closing them. Yeah. You know, I mean, like there, we would be having very intense public conversations about, Hey, is this a good use of tax taxpayer dollars? Um, but higher education, you know, this is, you know, I mean, we've pissed everybody off in higher education over the past month, so I don't really um, bother me to say it now. Like, higher education has been insulated from um, sort of a lot of the larger kind of trends in education um, that, you know, fortunately, there's good folks that are actually um, you're really embracing the idea of, you know, embracing equity now as a lens to approach their work and embracing like student centered being student centered as their major focus. But it's it's not where, frankly, K-12 is. Yeah. So can you think of a university or two that's doing the work well, enrolling, supporting, mm-hmm. graduating low income students? Yeah. So I think um, locally there, there's there's some good signs, some good headway, some good headwinds at a few institutions. Um, I, I think the folks at National Lewis, um, National Lewis University um, and their Harrison Pathways program, it's, it's precisely the kind of structural change that you need to see in higher education. Because oftentimes what folks will want to do is they'll say, well, we just need to create a program, right, for black males or a program for Latino males or whatever. And, and I think there's a place for that. But um, the, the question is sort of, how do you do things at scale when it's so, so it's not just serving 50 kids here or 20 kids or 20 students there? Um, and I think one of the things that, that Harrison Pathways at National Lewis has embraced is the idea that we need the system to change. And, and an example that um, that I give, which dovetails and connects with what they do, is like when I got to college, they gave us the, the newsprint um, schedule yeah, classes right. and they're just like, here, figure it out. Right? <laughs> and, and then it didn't matter to me because I was living in Carbondale, living in the dorms. It didn't matter that I had class on Tuesdays at 10 in the morning and then another one at one o'clock in the afternoon and then another one at four. Didn't matter because I lived in the dorms right across the bridge. It was a five minute walk and I, you know, I wasn't supporting anybody, uh, you know, um, or at least not my first year. (laughs) (laughs) Second and third year, a little bit different. Um, But but for a student who is commuting um, from the west side of Chicago to come to National Lewis and may have other external pressures, whether it's helping to take care of a family or helping uh, helping take care of younger siblings who may still be in high school or in elementary school, the idea that they would be sort of shoveling back and forth, right? Or, you, you know, putting classes, how we schedule classes matters for hmm. low-income students and for students that are, again, on the margins. And so so what, what National Lewis is, they think they've thought a lot about that and put together schedules that block students' classes all on, you know, I think three days a week. So if a student does have a part-time job, then they know, like, 
you know, Wednesdays and Thursdays are going to be the days that I can work and handle. But from on my other days, I have classes. I'm going to be here from, you know, eight to four or, and so it's, that's the kind of structural change that we need to see more of in, in higher education. Um, and I'll say that there's, there's some work that, um, Robert Morris um, is doing and they you know they've effectively eliminated developmental education courses um, they've eliminated remedial courses so students take those math courses and students still need you know students will sometimes still need additional um, supports but they're going right into those credit bearing courses and so they're not wasting their time or precious financial aid sure. you know taking uh, courses that they're not going to ever get credit for um, and so there's there's some really promising things happening uh, around the city and then nationally um uh, and I would also, sorry, sorry, I would say that there's there's great work that Governor State University is doing in terms of um, transfer agreements that they've arranged with um, some of the community colleges around there to where students um, walk in straight directly into junior status, you know, which is a big issue for a lot of transfer students is um, transfer students will often, uh, you know, you assume that I'm going to do my first two years in a community college and then I'll come in as a junior at school X. Far too often, that's not the case. Um, yeah. They do their first two years, and then they come in and realize, oh, all my credits, like they transferred, but they didn't transfer as major credit. So actually, I'm still a sophomore at Northern, or I'm still a sophomore at you know, uh, um, you know, you know, whatever yeah. university. And so, Governor State has done a lot to really make that process a lot more seamless. And so, there's some really good signs of. <clears throat> what folks, you know, that the headwinds are headed in the right direction. I think, um, yeah. Um, nationally, one more last example is um, governors. I mean, not governors. Uh, Georgia State, the other GSU. Uh, Georgia State mm-hmm. is probably the best example of making really sh- big structural changes that have eliminated their racial um, gaps. And actually, African Americans actually slightly outperform white students at, at oh. Georgia State. Um, How long did it take them to get there? And what would you um, <laughs> say? Like the two biggest drivers? Yeah, it, it was. It's so it's been a long um, journey. I mean, it, they really would say they they started this journey in really around 2003. Um, but the, the greatest kind of momentum and acceleration has happened really in the last 10 years. Um, and I think one thing that they, they, would, they would even say um, in, is their use of data um, to understand like where are students falling off, you know, and it's, again, that's a very K-12 exactly. mindset, right? I just going to say that. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Like, Talk to consortium. Yeah. yeah. We should look at news data to understand where are we losing students yeah. and then like how can we intervene before we lose students? And one of the things that their, their data sort of showed them was, um, and I think this is consistent with what folks at UIC have also said is, um, we have a lot of students who don't come back to college because they have a $400 bursar bill. And so they said, well, like, we can just solve that. Like, if it's just yeah. $400, like, we can just actually put that on your bursar account, yeah. you know? Um, and I think there's, there's a limit to that. Like, it's, I think it's up to $1,500 or something like that. But it's, it's those little things that for low-income students, $400, you may as well be asking for $4,000, you know? Yeah. Um, like, they can't call their parents and say, like, hey, can you write me a check for 500 bucks? And so, you know, data um, informed all of those things. But you're right. I mean, it's a very, like... It's, it's thinking about, you know, in our, our lens, obviously, in Chicago has been the work that the consortium has done around how to use data. And um, it's, it's, it's but it's but it's yeah. recognizing that it's a problem and caring enough mm-hmm. to solve the problem. Well, yeah, yeah. And, and it's it's also I, I wouldn't say caring because I do think folks care. I do think that um, but I don't think that there's been urgency around it um, because the business model in higher education actually has very little to do with graduation. The business model is enrollment, right? The business model is as long as you're enrolling X number of butts in seats every year, I don't say it doesn't matter, but it's not as great a concern if you're losing two thir- a third of them or half of them on the on the back end if you can continue to re-up and restock every year. And so I, I think it's the, the, just the business model's flawed. 
Um, and I think that's, again, part of what National Lewis is trying to kind of turn inside out is the whole business model of higher education. They say, look, $10,000, that's what it's going to cost you here. Um, and we, if you're Max Pell, if you're a low, low-income student, you're going to go here for free. Um, so their business model is actually built on retention as the, yeah. you know, keeping students there longer where you see the, the dividends paying off in the, you know, third and fourth year where students in, in other situations situations might have washed out. Yeah. So all these promising practices that you're talking about right now, according to your website, PCC has got about 25 different higher ed institutions mm-hmm. that you're trying to bring together and get them all to adopt these promising practices. Mm-hmm. Super easy work, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And 25 university presidents 25, to just do all that. That's right. <laughs> and, and, and with a staff of eight, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It's, it's a real easy work. Um, it is, it's, I, what I actually will say that the easy part, actually, um, we talked to, we spent probably about four or five months out recruiting colleges and universities for this, for this initiative. Um, mm-hmm. this, what we call the Illinois Equity Entertainment Initiative. I was actually pleasantly surprised at how easy it was for colleges to sign on. We thought that because we're not offering any money, like we're not saying we're going to throw, you know, here's, you know, we're going to give you a hundred thousand dollars to do this. Like you're going to have to do this with your own resources. Our role is really to be a convener Mm -hmm. and to bring in folks who are, you know, sort of working on these national best practices that we have convening in a couple of weeks that that will do that. Um, You know, we're essentially sort of the the middleman and and so I was actually pleasantly surprised at how easy it was. Um, and the other thing that we were expecting uh, when Lisa and I were out recruiting was we thought that institutions would want to know, like, who else is joining? <laughs> you know, like, is this worth our, who, yeah. is this prestigious? And yeah. um, we didn't get that question because I think this this group of higher ed leaders, um, they recognize that the, they, they recognize the, the urgency around the issue and the, the imperative to really, like, if you if you want to improve your graduation rates on your campus, your best avenue for doing it is improving your graduation rates for the students who are least likely to graduate, which are yeah. African American students, Latino students, low income students. Like there's there's not much more sort of um, juice you can get out of squeezing upper middle class students. Like they're already graduating. So yeah. um, I, I do think we were pleasantly surprised at how. Um, well received the the initiative has been so um, the last question we talked about um, student transfers remedial coursework in college etc the idea of affordability Um, this is a huge issue now Mm -hmm. and uh, you know we went to college a long time ago and and school was just not what it was Mm -hmm. uh, what it costs now so just tell us why is public university so expensive now so yeah, the that's a really good and actually it's the the answer is actually not that complicated <laughs> um, because there's like there's there's only a few things that Democrats and Republicans in Illinois have agreed on in the last fifteen years. Blagojevich <laughs> is <laughs> who started the disinvestment in higher education in Illinois. Like so, Democrats and Republicans have. Um, over, it's been a slow bleed where our state legislature has cut, Illinois used to get an A when it came to investment in higher education. Um, most, you know, I don't, I don't know if they're even still doing those report cards, but if we got better than a D right now, like that would be some serious grade inflation. <laughs> like, cause Illinois, and so what's happened is since really around 2000, Four, um, five is the General Assembly has just been slowly but surely cut at a percent here, percent there. And then the, the public institutions, they, they like, well, where are we going to get this money from? Right. You know, I mean, students like a public university only has really only has two major sources of income. And I'm excluding U of I because U of I has alumni resources that most of our other state public universities don't have. They have the state appropriation and tuition. And if you when the state begins to cut dollars, institutions, you know, they will and they have they've cut programs and they've cut them. They're down into the bone in terms of like there's no bloat because that and that was Blagojevich's big um, sort of complaint about higher education was there's so much bloat. And I mean, like I've worked in CPS and I managed a budget of 60 million dollars. And if you work in a big bureaucracy, 
there is some inefficiency. Sure. Like that's just the sure. nature yeah. of bureaucracy. And you can go and find bloat and inefficiency anywhere. Now, does that mean that the General Assembly should year after year Cut after your year right. to, like that? It's just that's it's it's bad excuse. policy. It's an yeah. excuse. It's yeah. Exactly. It's an excuse. And so there's a very clear correlation between cuts from the General Assembly and tuition going up. Um, it's so clear. And yeah. Which has caused many Illinois graduate high school graduates to go out of state to yeah. college. Yeah. Do we see the General Assembly reappropriating funds and, and, and well, yeah. re- re-upping that investment? Yeah, the, gov- the governor, um, Governor Pritzker's um, budget proposal now calls for a 5% across the board increase for our state public universities good and news. community colleges. So it's really good news. And, um, and some additional, um, and I think the institutions are as excited about the other thing that has gotten far less press, which is a capital budget. Um, because there's been all this deferred maintenance. Like when you go to our state universities and I go to some of our state universities and our, our presidents are having to make a really like the, the, the choices that they make, which arm am I going to cut off? Right. Am I going to patch the roof <laughs> or am I going to rewire, you know, rewire the, the electrical outlets over here? Um, or like, you know, yeah. I, like there's so the, the the fact that there's a, there's talk of a capital bill um, is as important to our state universities as the actual you know five percent increase in yeah. uh, in the budget. So I, there's hope, and I think there's a really I, well not a, not a, I think, but I know that there's a very strong kind of bipartisan. Um, group of legislators that are that see the writing on the wall and see that if we don't sort of begin not only to invest um, but also to you know look at what other policies the state can can implement that we're headed for a, a state system that is unsustainable um, yeah. and, and won't serve our students even as well as it does now which is not nearly as well as it did obviously when when I was in college yeah so, um, listeners, go to Partnership for College Completion's website. There's some really great policy briefs on there uh, that share the work that they're doing, that share some of this alarming data and hopefully uh, mobilize people to, to do more and to improve. Uh, Kyle Westbrook, thanks so much for giving us your time today. It was a pleasure. Thanks for being a guest on the EdCup. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to The Ed Couple. For more episodes, visit theedcouple.com and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Backing up the stuff, moving on to Tennessee. Everyone's getting famous with me. Your name up in the line.